to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anu Nupadier, and thanks for joining us. Today's episode is the second in a three-part series on the law firm business model and how COVID-19, the recession, and rising competition will cause law firms to rapidly change. Our guest today is Toby Brown, the Chief Practice Management Officer of AmLaw 50 law firm Perkins Coie. As a veteran of pricing, efficiency, and value in the law firm context, Toby provides a crucial perspective on where law firms are headed. In our discussion, Toby talks about building close relationships with clients, even while having very direct conversations about pricing, the role of the pricing function in big law, his new organization, Legal Value Network, and how Perkins Coie won an increasing share of a major client's business by demonstrating an 18% savings per transactional matter. Toby also talks about his firm's client advantage program that works with clients to create operational and knowledge management efficiencies within their legal organizations and to avoid what he refers to as, quote, steaming piles of KM. As always, if you like our discussion, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Toby, thank you so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on. It is great to be here. We're going to have some fun. Well, I, I think I think that's right. And uh, <laughs> let's start off with uh, just having you introduce yourself to uh, our listeners. I think a lot of folks in the knowledge management, CIO, uh, library, you know, technology worlds already know who you are. Uh, and if they don't know you by name, they know you by your work. Uh, but for the rest of our audience out there, for practicing lawyers, for you know everyone from law students uh, and and you know other other kinds of tech people, um, you know, kind of walk us through your career arc. Certainly. Well, and I should also say thank you for having me. This is uh, I was thinking about this morning. It's been I think I've done a podcast before, but if I have, it's been a while. So this it's going to be a fun experience. So thank you for having me. Oh, of course, I so yeah, the the career arc. Uh, one of the things I like thinking about with my career arc is I actually started as a runner, a messenger at a law firm um, while I was in um, undergraduate, and so I sort of worked my way up the, the law firm ladder, so to speak, to where I'm now a chief, and and I've really enjoyed being in this industry the whole time. So my career arc, I started uh, in undergraduate as a runner at a firm, actually for that firm, which is no longer around. It merged into Brian Cave. It was Home Roberts and Owen. And this was back when I was in Salt Lake. I worked there three times. I was the messenger. I went back as their librarian when I was in graduate school. And then I went back again and was their administrator for a while. Uh, so I, part of what you'll get from my background is I've touched pretty much every aspect of the <laughs> of the legal spectrum in terms of how to operate a law firm or a, a you know legal business. That's also a good setup to what you're doing right now, which is also still touching all aspects of a law firm. But uh, let me not get ahead of myself. Uh, con- continue with, with the kind of career arc that brought you to your current role. Indeed. And uh, I'll do my best to condense. So I, when I finally graduated, um, I, I have a master's in economics. I 
then had a whole bunch of experience in the legal industry. So I went to work for the Utah State Bar. And I was actually there almost 18 years. Um, I did take a couple of pauses where I tried interesting things, which we can talk about. Uh, but when I went to work for the Utah State Bar, I created and built their CLE department. They had just gone to mandatory CLE. And so I had to build that up. And so this is also a recurring theme for my uh, career in legal as I'm a builder. And while at the Utah State Bar, I built a number of things. I built their access to justice program, their pro bono program, their marketing communications, their IT program. In fact, the, how I ended up getting out of Utah, was, this was, geez, 15 plus years ago. I had moved the Utah Bar's membership management system into the cloud. And this was like well before the cloud was as popular as it is. And it was uh, quite a success, actually, for a while. But also when I was at the Utah Bar, I got involved in something called the Utah Electronic Law Project, which was early on with electronic signatures. Actually, back then, we called them digital signatures. Uh, so that gave me a reach, a deeper reach into the technology side and actually into the uh, security side of things. But moving ahead, the when I mentioned the online membership management system, that company that built that was based in Austin, Texas, and I ended up going to work for them and moving to Texas. But at the same time, I ended up meeting uh, the woman I am married to, and she lived in Houston, so I ended up um, relocating to Houston. And when I did that, I took a job with full, then Fulbright and Jaworski, which is now part of Norton Rose Fulbright, and started as their knowledge management guy. Um, and did that for a while. That's this was like 2007, and that's when the Great Recession started to hit. And I, I gave a presentation to leadership over why I thought knowledge management was going to become mission critical, and it was really about alternative fee arrangements. And I was cornered in that meeting by two partners saying, what do you know about this and how can you help us? That was on a Tuesday morning. That Friday morning, I was in front of the general counsel of a pipeline company negotiating a holdback success fee. Uh, alternative fee arrangement. And from then, uh, this black hole form just sucked me in. I built the alternative fee program there at Fulbright. I ended up, and I'll bounce around a little bit in terms of the, the chronology. I did that for a while at Fulbright, went to well, Vincent and Elkins, and I was... Uh, can I, can go I ask ahead. a question about, about that? I mean, for um, for our listeners that who may not know the kind of straight line from knowledge management to alternative fee arrangements or knowledge management to greater realization rates or profitability or, 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 you know, whatever you were pursuing or whatever the partners brought you in to discuss, can you connect those dots? I mean, why in, in your eyes did you think that KM was mission critical and why did these two partners really explicitly bring you into this meeting with a major client to talk about that? Well, there is a very direct connection uh, because alternative fee arrangements primarily means fixed fees. And once you go to fixed fees, it's about efficiency, and that's how you're going to, you know, hang on to your margins and improve them. And that's what knowledge management is. It's like how do you leverage your past knowledge so that you don't have to recreate it over and over again. So there, in fact, when I said I'll I will take on alternative fees, they're like, are you know, are you concerned about letting go of knowledge management? And I said, oh no, it's going to come back. It did, but not until a couple of firms later. <laughs> But that the partners saw that as well. They're like, okay, yeah, this is connected. And and I still, I was, you know, one of my golden rules is that partners, lawyers will do anything to avoid talking about fees. It was like, oh, someone can come and talk to my client about fees and I don't have to. And so I, I was really, I guess, shocked initially 
but also grateful that they trusted me. In fact, I went to uh, one client for Fulbright, it was TransOcean. This was before the Gulf issues they experienced. And I went by myself, which I, if I was the relationship partner, I don't think I would have been okay with that. But they're like, oh, you, you just go talk to them. But it ended up being a strong way of building relationships uh, with clients. And it still is. And I consider it my highest value function is having those sorts of conversations with clients. A lot of uh, folks outside of the legal profession still give law a bad rap. You know, I think I think uh, people's perception of the legal profession is maybe 20 years behind where it actually is now. They assume that lawyers are still trying to churn cases and, you know, just try to bill a lot of hours and that lawyers shun efficiency when that's not what I've seen uh, at all. Uh, you know, I, I started out as a paralegal in 2003 and, <laughs> you know, even all the way back from there, it seemed like, um, you know, a, the vast majority of lawyers were really trying to do work efficiently uh, because they knew that doing that work efficiently will get them more work and expand their book and um, make them more in demand. Is that is that what you've seen or have you seen kind of a shift between lawyers interested in just billing a lot of time to later in your career where um, you know lawyers are more efficiency minded? Well, there's two points there. One is important to, and to acknowledge the compensation systems that law firms do reward billing hours. And, and we should just put that out there. Uh, that being said, um, I, I remember the first practice area that I watched really sort of the market sort of hit it at the fee level instead of at the billing rate level. And it was patent litigation. And it was over maybe 18 months. I watched that number go from like 5 million to 1.5. And and something that's happened that I don't think people appreciate, and I'm glad you've brought up this subject, is actually a lot has changed in lawyer behavior in the past 10 years that really it hasn't been noticed or acknowledged. And it's it's along the lines of what you're saying. No, they're not using AI and blockchain as much as they should, but they they trim down the teams, they manage to budgets better, I wouldn't say tightly, but better. They're aware of budgets, they're aware of fees, they're they're far more aware of that. And so they they approach how they manage their teams. In fact, I see, you know, this is one of, <laughs> I, I read a lot of outside counsel guidelines and I see these things in there. Oh, you can't have more than one lawyer in a meeting. And and that's like from days gone by when a, when a partner would hold a call with the client and have six associates sitting around the room on a speakerphone so that they could hear what the client's saying. That stuff, I don't see that stuff happening these days. So there, there absolutely has been change. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think a lot of that is, as you've indicated, kind of client-driven. Um, so, so Toby, now, I think I, I cut you off when you were, you know, still at, at Norton Rose or, or Fulbright. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, it it's shocking to me that as early as 2007, a uh, non-practicing lawyer was brought in to talk to clients about pricing. It seems to me that Fulbright Jaworski, in that sense, was way out in front. I think that's that's a lot more normal now. But um, was that at all normal then for you to be brought in like that in that capacity? Absolutely not. And 
and I have to credit, in fact, I still credit the guy's name of Steve Dillard, who was head of the litigation group. They at, at the time and and everyone's like, oh, we have to perfect this before we take it out to clients. And he said, if that's the case, we'll never take it to clients because <laughs> it'll never be perfect. And and so he was very much an evangelist and, and, and a sponsor for me. And so I think that gave people more comfort. But I really it was just they just even to this day, they just are afraid to have that conversation in part. It's understandable because it makes them feel like they're not that they're opposing their client instead of aligned with their client. But I actually don't believe that. I think coming up with creative fee approaches aligns you with the client and solves the client's problem on another level. So Fulbright, you know, I still credit them for giving me that runway. And at the time, it was almost funny because they were, I said, hey, I would like to learn. I would like to get better at this. And so I, I'd like to be able to go speak on it and, and become known that way so that I can learn from other people. And at first they were like, no, 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 no. You know, cause they figured it was secret sauce. And at the time it sort of was cause very, very few firms had even, you know, broached the subject. So, but the, the funny story was they finally broke down and said, okay, you can go talk at one thing. And it, like a month later, we were in an alternative fee committee meeting and one of the people says, oh, this client speaking at this program, one of us really needs to go or something like that. And I said, oh, what's the program? And they said the program and I was just kind of smiling. And I said, who's on the panel with them? And they looked down and they said, oh, you are. <laughs> so after that, they were just fine because they realized when I went out and spoke, it demonstrated that, you know, not that I was giving away secret sauce, but that Fulbright had this, you know, extra value that they could bring to the table. Um, so I, again, I credit Fulbright. So back to, I, I did it briefly at Vincent and Elkins and had intended to stay there a while, but Aiken Gump sought me out, um, offered me a path to, to a chief role. And so I ended up moving over to Aiken Gump, Aiken Gump. So now I'm on my third Amlaw 50 firm where I'm building out pricing, build it out there. Um, but at the same time, what it did was highlight, I could get, you know, win-win pricing options with clients, but our ability to win was, this gets back to the KM issue, uh, was dependent on us starting to do it differently. And so that expanded my role. And I took over knowledge management there and the library. Uh, I built out um, a practice management team. And these are the people who support the practice group chairs. So they're really like directors of operations for the business units. Um, and at a point in time, because I, again, back to my theme about building, kind of a fixer who makes things profitable, um, e-discovery was handed off to me. And so I was able to pivot that and make it more profitable. Um, also a very useful experience, uh, also very client-facing. So had a, had a great experience at Aiken. Um, was there four and a half plus years. Then um, the Perkins Cooey opportunity came up. And so Perkins Cooey, well, at Aiken got my title was chief practice officer here at Perkins. It's chief practice management officer, somewhat similar. And so here I have, I oversee practice management again, although I've really, I would say, um, upped our game on that side. Uh, pricing, nobody calls it alternative fees anymore. Well, I shouldn't say nobody, very few people do. So pricing, built out pricing here at Perkins Cooey. I would say we have a world-class team here. I actually did some legal project management at Aiken Gump, but here I really created a formal program and I, I've separated it from pricing. 
a lot of firms have it together for or group together for whatever reason, some obvious reasons. I see them as distinct functions. So we've built out now a very top end legal project management. I've spun out another group we call our client relationship group. And this is a group that provides high level support to the relationship partners for major clients. And that that has been a the surprise has been how quickly how valuable that's become a lot of firms have client teams or something like that and that's more a marketing and bd sort of function this crosses the spectrum like for instance if a, an invoice is a problem that's actually a big relationship issue with the client and not something the marketing people would know or or how to deal with or should be dealing with so this client relationship group team does that with our major clients and we're seeing dividends very quickly with that. Last thing I'll say that I do at Perkins Coie, I took this over a few years ago, is lateral partner acquisition. And I purposely use the word acquisition because we treat it like an M&A function, not like a talent recruiting function. So we have better diligence. Actually, my my number one that runs pricing also runs this colleague. Your name is Christina Lambright. And so that brings that discipline and rigor around profitability to the lateral partner space. And we're seeing obvious returns on that in terms of book size. And actually, we have one of the highest retention rates of lateral partners in the industry as well. So that was a longer version, I guess, than I planned. But that gives you sort of the breadth of what I've done and what I'm doing now. So much to break out here. I've taken copious <laughs> notes uh, based on what you just said. I want to focus in on that last part, which is lateral partner acquisition. We're talking about uh, what should be in this episode uh, a couple days ago. This was one of the things that fascinated me. The fact that you and you're in this role at Perkins Coie, you view bringing on partners as kind of an M&A function and of course, what you're looking at here is the book of business that a lateral partner may have and how profitable that lateral partner may be when they come over to Perkins Coie. What do you assess when you're looking at that? I mean, when you're, when you're evaluating, you know, a partner has checked out, you know, they're good culture fits, uh, you know, everything looks, looks good. Uh, when you're kind of doing the M&A due diligence on this partner in their book of business, what do, what sticks out? And uh, the converse of that, you know, what what um, what's a red flag for you? Well, the and and Christina actually has these conversations typically directly with the candidates, and it's I'll call it profitability 101. It's you know what level of billing rates do you have? What sort of realization are you getting on those rates? A very important question is how are you leveraging the work? Because leverage adds a lot to profitability. But then Christina also and through this process gets at, I'll say a more realistic view to the portability of their work, as in you know help help us understand the work. One of the challenges or one of the issues I'll say we see in the lateral market is someone will say, oh, I have a $5 million book. But when you start probing in, it's a client that's a client of the firm, even though they may be the relationship partner, you know, we we can get a sense, okay, this is a client that is embedded in the firm, not just this partner's client, which means the portability of the work would be in question. So we, we really dive in around a lot of issues like that. Another thing, most firms that I have seen when I talk to colleagues at other firms are very opportunistic in the way they look at lateral partners in that, oh, somebody said, oh, so-and-so at Firm X, we understand they're, you know, 
available. We should talk to them. Whereas at Perkins, we have a, a solid strategic plan. And what would a what would a corporation do? They would look at their strategic plan and say, here's where we have a gap in our business, or here's where we need to augment our business. And they would go out and make acquisitions to do to meet those needs. And so that's what we do. In fact, part of the way we grade ourselves is how many laterals were strategic versus opportunistic. They're still going to be opportunistic, and you'd be a fool not to be looking for those. We sort of flipped it. It was 25, 75, and now it's the opposite. So it's it's really about being strategic about how you grow your business. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. That rigorous and strategic ap- approach to lateral partner acquisition that in a lot of other firms would just be under the banner of recruitment is, is fascinating. Yep. It's one of the things that... Uh, really shows your sophisticated approach to all of this. I think another another thing that shows your sophisticated approach to this is how you um, you know, how you approach pricing. This is going to be an intentionally broad question, so go in whatever direction you think properly encapsulates this. But what is your approach to to pricing at Perkins Coie? I mean, you've got a master's in economics. You you can think of things in a very you know high level way. How do you approach pricing? What are the the key um, the the key levers or metrics you use in understanding whether a certain case or deal or engagement is priced correctly? Well, there's there's levels and dimensions to this, and we'll I'm going to put rates at the end of this. So the the conversations I have with clients are extremely valuable. And part of what you're doing there is assessing the true value points they have. Because most clients say they want to save money, but that means very different things to very different clients. And so you have to sit down and say, okay, yeah, this is an M&A deal or this is a major litigation, but what's the business drivers behind this? I've even been in situations where the legal department doesn't know. And I said, well, let's go engage with the business unit so so that we are the value we're providing here meets the needs of that that this situation. In fact, this you're, takes suggesting, me back to my... you're suggesting, Toby, that um, there, there are times when you know you're 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 obviously engaging with the client, call it the GC or an AGC at a big company, and there are times where you ask the AGC to kind of go to a different business unit to make sure that the work that Perkins Coie is going to do is going to be valuable, not just to the office of the GC, but also to the entire business? Absolutely. In fact, the way I put that in term, you know, the way I put that pretty directly in these conversations is I say, the lawyers here at Perkins Coie are here to make you look good when it comes to the law, and I'm here to make you look good when it comes to the numbers. And so you have, and the example I'll bring up is actually from my Fulbright days, and it was a patent litigation example where same client, two different cases, we priced them completely differently because one was, I wouldn't call it a bet the company, but it was some very important patents. And the other one was a nuisance troll case. And I'm like, you don't want us treating these the same because they have a very different value proposition to your company. And that client was grateful and said, hey, so what that means for us in terms of profitability. So and this is the other piece of pricing and how how you're effective at pricing is that you educate your partners and your firm on what makes work profitable. 
And that sounds very basic, but I will tell you, I, I still remember at Fulbright when I got to my third partner and I, I was explaining profitability to them and I figured they all knew and they didn't, they had no idea. So you create this, you know, culture of profitability. So then they start thinking more about it. So then they're like, okay, if this is what's important to the client in this situation, now I have a sense of how to manage this in a way that the client will be happy and we can keep a, a reasonable margin. This is, this is exactly, I mean, this is exactly why I wanted to have you on this podcast, Toby. And this is the kind of stuff, right? I mean, you know, lawyers oftentimes, uh, you know, flatly say my rate is $300 an hour, you know, $600 an hour. And exactly as you said, no matter whether it is for a nuisance patent or a bet the company patent, if you hire this attorney at this firm, their rate is flat, $800 an hour. Despite, and I'm going to use a, a term that I've learned at some conference a while back, the value elasticity of time, right? There's some time, yep. some hour long chunks that are extremely leveraged that are worth, you know, thousands of dollars for that hour or, or more. And there's other <laughs> increments of an hour that are worth zero dollars to the client, right? You're, you're getting it exactly that. Uh, how is that? I mean, how is that received from, uh, you know, the lawyers that you're that are working on that case? I mean, when you went in there to that particular you know, client associated with that patent litigation and said, no, 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 no. These are two extremely different things. It is incumbent on us to price them completely differently. Did, were there any attorneys at the firm who said, Toby, man, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't rock the boat. <laughs> Well, occasionally there is that, but in these sorts of circumstances, this is another sort of core value proposition of good pricing people is you're building confidence in the lawyer about the value of their services. And, and you're going to say, this is the, you know, bet the company case or whatever. It's like, you are super valuable in this case. In fact, you, this brings to mind another situation. And I have these conversations with the clients too where it, was, it wasn't patent litigation, it was another litigation, and they were trying not to spend money early on. And I said, given what you've told me, the importance of this case in this situation, I actually think you should open your checkbook for the first part of this. And they're like, why do you mean? And I said, well, this is one strategy, the strategy of the case is established. And I said, you wanna be way out in front of this. You don't want to sort of, you know, putz along and then when things get, serious then do something about it i said if you get out in front of this you can probably clip this off and they're like yeah you're right and so all of a sudden they're like in, instead of trying to nickel and dime in the early phases of the case they were like no we want to be aggressive in the early phases of the case so again value to the client you know confidence from the partner's view at the firm and win-win yeah, that, that's fascinating uh to you know these kinds of functions at times appear to me to be um, kind of consulting functions, right? I mean, it almost seems like something, you know, law firms could do, but maybe don't unless they have, uh, you know, a Toby or maybe, you know, from the last yeah. episode of the podcast, a Meredith, a William yep. Range, right? If you have someone of that caliber, but uh, it seems to me something that is right up the alley of the big four, right? So before we hire an AMLAW 50 firm, let me, you know, general counsel of whatever big company, let me sit down with Ernst & Young and, you know, design a, a legal strategy and a pricing strategy and then engage with law firms based on exactly that. Is that where this is going? And, 
you know, well, let me start with that. You know, am I am I off the mark there? Am I, uh, you know, on the right track? Well, I would say that where I I wanted to go is, and this is the economist in me, is shifting from pricing by the hour to pricing by I'll call it project pricing. So it's a fee based view into pricing because clients don't write checks for hourly rates. They get a $10,000 bill or $20,000 bill, and that's what they're paying. You know, it should be going in that direction. All the signs are that's going in that direction. But clients are actually also sort of dogmatic and embedded in billable hourly thinking. It's what they grew up with. Most lawyers inside a a legal department used to work for a large firm. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, we we could spend... Uh, you know, 30 minutes or an hour on each of your roles. I mean, I've just written down your purview here at Perkins Coie. And, you know, I've got pricing and LPM and knowledge management, e-discovery, client relationships, um, you know, lateral partner acquisition. I'm sure I'm missing two or three. But, you know, is is there, I, I think, so first of all, I think it's very notable that someone of your background who is, you know, trained in, economics, someone who started out as an, as an administrator, who had stints as, as a librarian and as a pricing person, you know, your, your portfolio has grown and grown and grown. I think it's important to note that you have structured it to be this way, right? I mean, you didn't stumble into this. Uh, what is the theme that kind of covers or what is the through line through all of these things in your portfolio at Perkins Coie? Well, <laughs> this will, will sound bad, I suppose, in some respects, but I have this laser focus on revenue and profitability. But what's behind that is what will drive that is us solving our client's problem in a cost-effective way. Uh, because if we're not doing that, we're not going to grow revenue. We're not going to be able to grow our margins. So I tend to come in and look at things and say, why why is why is this not really focused on the client and and it usually drives down to profitability issues so i with my teams i'm very clear that we always need to be thinking about these issues uh so that if, if there was a theme that runs through there it's it's you know succeeding on a financial basis but doing that by really listening to our clients and making sure we're solving not just their legal problem but their business problem one of the things that we talked about, and you know, hat tip to Ron Friedman here. It was a mutual connection of ours, and it kind yes. of a household name in, in knowledge management, I think. Uh, but you know, based on our, our discussion offline, you concluded through your discussions with Ron that you know, ultimately, what you're looking to do is you know, build less time to the client and build cheaper time to the client all while solving the client's problem. First of all, can you talk about that? And second of all, how does that ultimately and year over year increase the revenue of the firm instead of steadily decreasing it? And there's a lot of layers here and a very good sort of question theme, I'll call it. And and Ron and I do agree. And and what we do is say, well, first, when, when you hear law firm innovation, I say, what you're really talking about is lowering the cost of delivery, you know, cost of the client and the cost of the firm delivering it. And we'll get back to that in a moment. The, 
and and that is with either fewer hours or cheaper hours. And people think, oh, that means lower rates. No, what what we mean by that is lower labor cost sources. So the way the way, what makes law firms profitable, their work profitable, and I like to break it down on a matter level is a matter will generate you know thirty thousand dollars in fees. And what was our cost of generating that thirty thousand dollars? And what what firms, most firms do is say, okay, it was X number of hours and the cost of each hour was whatever. And you do hours times our cost, which is not our billing rates, our cost. And so it's the delta between that cost and the revenue, which is profit. So it's not, so if, if I'm just giving discounts, yes, I, you know, theoretically you're driving down costs of the client, but again, that's, you know, rates and hours it's not the actual fee they pay but if you find a way to do it to where you're saying okay instead of having a partner do this i'm gonna i'm gonna have a senior counsel do it instead of having the senior counsel do a certain thing i'm gonna have a counsel do it and move it down the stack so that you're having the most effective lowest labor cost resource perform the function so this is something I think the industry is starting to do. I did it at Aiken Gump. We're doing it at Perkins, creating a non-partner track. So it, and effectively, it's actually the same people who just were like, I don't really want to be a partner, but I like practicing law here. Put them in a sort of different cost structure and rate structure so that it's a win-win. We're, we're getting margins off them and we're lowering the cost of the client. So that's I don't know if I touched on every <laughs> angle there for you, uh, but, but that's that's the thinking around that. Well, uh, one other thing I should talk about, fewer hours is typically leveraging process and technology so that the amount of time it takes a lawyer slash timekeeper is reduced per task. And that's where... Yeah, probably Meredith probably talked about some of that stuff she's doing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And 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 the upshot of that, or to kind of close the loop, is that you know, for from like Perkins Coie, when you do work that is very high quality, you're using tech that makes you more efficient. You're pushing um, the work down to the the kind of billable bracket that can do the work efficiently. Ultimately, the client sees that, right? And then next year, the client, you know, wants to give more work to Perkins Coie, right? I mean, is that, and, and can you also, you know, on that point, speak to your, uh, and this came up in the, in the uh, last, last episode with Meredith, but the framework in your mind of, of kind of transactional clients and institutional clients. Yeah, and that's that was the thing I missed was the uh, how how this benefits the firm, and it absolutely absolutely is around demonstrating that you are high quality, cost effective to clients, and therefore they sh if if they're you know thoughtful clients, they're probably going to start sending you more work. Uh, and the way we have, and I'm I'm using this word one way once, and I'll use it another way. We're, the way we're institutionalizing that at Perkins Coie is we're going to some of our clients and saying, instead of pricing by the matter, which is a transactional, like say, I'm going to do one M&A for you, and here's the price for that, go in and price on an institutional basis and say, if you give us a flow of M&A work, we'll actually be able to give you a more uh, competitive price, and partly because we can spread the risk across more than one matter, and partly because with that sort of revenue stream, 
we are now in a better position to make investments to be more efficient. In one area, we've done this, I will say, very effectively at Perkins Coie, and we won the ACC Value Champion Award for it this year. Um, and the client we did it with, which is public at 7-Eleven, is with their contract review. We turned it into a process. But when we did that with 7-Eleven, we said, look, this can't be onesie twosies. For us to make this kind of investment, we'd need to see a volume of work. And so we agreed to that. And so now we have this effectively year-over-year engagement where we're doing, I'll say, the big lion's share of their contract review. And we're saving them money because, again, this is public. Their technology contracts, technology transaction contracts we were doing, we reduced the fee per contract by 18%. Now, okay, I go, you know, some client says, oh, I want to get a 15% discount. They really haven't demonstrated cost savings on a per matter basis. And I would all, at the top level, I'll say, when clients are asking for discounts and everything, the reason they're doing that is the general counsel needs to go to the CFO or the CEO and say, I am a good steward of our legal spend um, and I'm saving us money by doing it. Saying you got a discount has has been the way that they they have been doing that. But I would say CFOs are losing patience because they're like, wait a minute, our legal spend's still going up. What's going on? So it's very powerful to enable a client to go up to the CFO and say, we're demonstrating that we're reducing the cost of our legal services on a per matter basis. So that institutional way, I really think that is going forward a very smart way for clients to demonstrate savings and for law firms to be able to generate profitable revenue and do it in a cooperative, collaborative, win-win fashion. And that is a massive, I mean, that 18% number really stuck out. That's a massive savings for, uh, you know, a, a, a extremely large business like 7-Eleven on contracts. So, um, yeah, I could see why. <laughs> you know, the ACC chose to honor uh, the firm in that. Uh, you know, that's a good segue to uh, the next topic I want to get into, and that is other ways that Perkins Coie and your group um, offer up value to clients. There's been a trend that we've talked about on this podcast. I know a lot of folks are aware of this, and that is that. Um, you know, in-house counsel departments are growing rapidly. You know, I think a lot of large company in-house teams are, are the largest they've ever been in the history of those respective businesses, and sometimes the largest by a large amount. And, you know, obviously, these large in-house counsel departments need more than just outside counsel services. They need other services as well. And I'd love for you to get into into that and into the kind of suite of services that your group and and Perkins Coie offers to clients aside from just, just pure legal work. Happy to talk about that. So my conversations I've talked about that I have these direct conversations with clients on a regular basis. Uh, over time, they evolved as I learned more about, you know, clients' perspective, and I've talked to perhaps more clients than anybody around. Um, I started seeing patterns, and so I, we started offering. Initially, I just said, "Hey, look, I have, you know, a deep expertise in the pricing area. How about if you want, I'll come on site with your legal team. You know, it's pre-pandemic, obviously, and and do a CLE, if you will." on how to get more out of your outside counsel spend. And I'm like, this is not just for Perkins, this is for any outside counsel. So they started taking me up on that. And those conversations were, 
sort of started spreading out. And there was one, I'll call it watershed moment with one client, we ended up talking about, and this brings us back to knowledge management, (laughs) document management. And so that caused us to step back and say, wait a minute, you know, and you mentioned, you know, the in-house teams have been growing dramatically. They have, but their ops teams have not grown that much. Uh, I'm aware of one client that has like a thousand lawyers in their legal department. They have like 23 ops people supporting them, which I'll say is not that much. So we went and said, look, we're willing to share our expertise across the operational spectrum. We've branded it, we call it client advantage. So I, on a very regular basis, I talk to clients and I'm like, I'll send our e-billing team over if you want that, our KM team, um, any sort of operational aspect of a firm. So, and I'll, I've got an a interesting example, which is a KM example. We had one client come to us and say, we want you to start any document you send us that has a legal opinion in it. We want you to CC this other address. And I'm like, okay, this has got to be interesting. So I call the ops person. And that's another thing because of all of these conversations I have, I tend to develop strong relationships with our legal operations people. So I go to this legal operations person. I said, help me understand, which is my favorite phrase, help me understand what you're trying to accomplish. And he said, well, our goal is not paying twice for the same legal advice i said okay so what are you going to do with this so he said well we're going to you know put all of these documents into this repository so that our lawyers can go search it and i said i said okay this is not going to solve your problem <laughs> and the ops person said well we're going to give it a try and and it was it, this is like km 101 and you know and i I jokingly refer to it as a steaming pile of KM. And and for anyone who does KM, you would know there, you know, there's no structure around that as knowledge management. And so we offered up and said, look, we'll have our KM team come in and talk to you. And so that that ended up initiating another conversation. So, but if you've never done KM, that sounds like a reasonable and smart thing to do. So we've created this approach where we can come in and go, if you're thinking about this. I'll, I'll bring an expert to you and you can talk to them. And for us, we do it as a value add. It's not something we charge our clients for. And so presumably the, the, uh, the major value here is that you are uh, embedding, you know, you're embedding Perkins Coie in these clients, not just in a legal capacity, but also in an operational capacity, technology capacity, KM capacity, uh, which then strengthens the relationship, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they'll pick up the phone. In fact, you know, 20 minutes before I was on with you, I was on with a legal ops person from a tech company on the West Coast talking generally about what they got going on. And he wanted my ideas on a few things. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, this may be dated as well, but I think a lot of relationship partners at firms are uh, skittish about putting non-lawyers or maybe junior people or technologists in front of their clients because they're afraid that you know something bad is going to happen. What you're describing here is a uh, a sterling example of how this could be major value add, and you've kind of enshrined it in this client advantage program. Uh, I'd be shocked if this similar structure does not. Uh, become the norm in the next five to 10 years. Um, oh, on that? I absolutely agree. There, I, and I've heard, like, I know Goodwin has been doing something similar. 
Um, it just makes sense. It's, it's very logical. So yeah, I would expect it to become more commonplace. Although I will say when I go talk to clients, like on pitches and stuff, I will ask, you know, have any of the other firms brought somebody like me? And I do that for a couple of reasons. One, to sort of make it very explicit, but I have yet to have them say, oh yeah, somebody else brought somebody like you, but it's, it'll come. Yeah, I think it, I think it is still uh, an exception. I remember talking uh, to Evan Shankman, uh, who's now at Fisher and Phillips about this. And this is something that he, you know, this is a, a, you know, a major kind of strategic practice that he started uh, doing at his, at his prior firm, which is uh, joining along in those client pitches to talk about technology primarily, right? How can we use technology to do uh, the work of, of uh, this particular client most efficiently? And it stuck. And sure enough, he became a kind of go-to person <laughs> to, come, uh, to come discuss this in pitches. And I have to imagine that that's going to um, accelerate uh, dramatically. I want to move to, um, you know, one, one more topic, one last topic here. And that is that, you know, in this theme of you being a builder in, in legal, you have built uh, two uh, organizations uh, that I want you to talk about. The first one is one called LVN that's relatively new called the Legal Value Network. And I think you've, you're, you founded it with, with some colleagues in the industry. And the other one, I, I think a lot more of, of the listeners of this podcast might have heard of, it's called Sally. And I really want you to just start talking about Legal Value Network. What is it? What is its mission? Uh, why did you create it? And then also um, discuss Sally with our listeners as well. Certainly. And thank you for uh, providing an opportunity to talk about these subjects. They're two of my favorite. So Legal Value Network, LVN, what that was born from eight plus years ago, I founded the P3 conference, which has become like the pricing conference. But then at the three Ps, which I, uh, I would conveniently change in every conversation, it was always pricing, then typically legal project management, and then practice innovation or something else. <laughs> Process improvement, there were a bunch of Ps out there. But the I founded it, and then I, I sort of was able to you know gather around me a group of really smart people and we were attached to the Legal Marketing Association. We didn't fit exactly there, but they were an awesome host for a number of years. Uh, and we grew it to a point where we had like last year, this year sort of ended up being challenging because of COVID, but the prior year, almost 500 people. And we we're like, you know what? We've reached critical mass. It's time to, to do something separate from that the Legal Marketing Association. Again, very grateful for their support over the years. Um, so there was a group of eight of us got together and said, let's do this. So the vision for LVN is really kind of, you know, think about it as sort of the tip of the sword of change. And it's the people <clears throat> like pricing and legal project management, or, which are really the sort of forces inside firms and, you know, in the client space and elsewhere that are driving change. So we're about driving change in the industry. So like, for instance, it, if you're managing the emails, server, you're probably going to belong to ILTA. But if you're in the IT space looking at AI and trying to gain efficiencies and stuff like that, you're probably going to want to look at LVN as a place for a home. So we're also very, uh, you know, we have a bunch of uh, words we like, like collaboration and community. That the, the P3 community, it was really was a community. So we're building this new LVN community. And a core 
theme we have is that success comes through collaboration. That 7-Eleven example I gave earlier, that was collaboration. If I had just gone to a client and said, here, do this and we'll save you money, it wouldn't have gone well. That was really a collaborative process where we sat down with 7-Eleven and defined this together and designed it together so that it was a win for them and acceptable to them and a win for Perkins Coie. So we think that's how the industry is going to succeed going forward is by everyone coming together and and coming up with solutions that are win-win truly. So following that, you know, any our membership comes from well, we have three primary sources, law firms obviously, but also clients. It's the people on the legal ops teams that are the change agents. And then we also the business partners, the tech companies, the consultants and others, we don't view them as sponsors. We view them as members. Uh, I have a number of friends who crossed over to IT companies or come back in the other direction. And, and in fact, one of my favorite LVN webinars we did this year included Tom Jones from Iridium and Jill Nelson from Intap. And they are competitors, but they are those two people are in my opinion, have the deepest knowledge of law firm profitability in the industry. So that just highlights that it's community. And so that's what we're doing with LVN. We have over 550 members already. Um, we're really ramping up our education. Uh, we're going to be doing roundtables, a bunch of stuff like that. And we're we're calling it our LVN conference experience that we're looking at doing in early October of 2021. And if Pfizer plays out well, <laughs> their vaccine, it will be in person. But at a minimum, we're probably going to do some sort of hybrid with part of it in person as it makes sense and part of it um, virtual. So that's LVN. Very excited about it. If you go to LegalValueNetwork.com, you can become a member. I highly encourage you to check it out. That, that's great. So, I appreciate that. And, and a quick note there, I've never looked forward to in-person legal conferences more than <laughs> 2021 so you'll you'll see me there with with bells on uh toby uh, i'm gonna be going to all the conferences as, as if as you said this pfizer vaccine news uh comes to pass fingers crossed um but no, i appreciate yes. that and, and uh you know i'd encourage our, our listeners to take a look at, at lvn i mean it, it seems like you all are doing some impressive things and talking about pricing and uh, how law firms should operate and what clients can expect in a very uh, like modern and mature way, not in a uh, just pure law firm profitability way, but in a win-win way, which I think very much fits our, uh, our, our times with respect to the recession that we're in right now. We, in fact, you brought up another one of my favorite webinars we did this year, and it was Law Firm Economics 101 for Clients. We had Bob Taylor from Liberty Mutual moderate it. And actually, it was myself and Keith Maziarek from Catton. And and we've really had fun with it. And Bob was like poking fun and like, oh, you just want to build all these hours and stuff like that. But we really demonstrated, here's how a law firm makes money. And so th what that does is empower the clients to go, oh, well, if we want to spend less but the, and keep our law firm partners profitable, now we know the mechanics of that. Um, it was, I think it's still our most popular in terms of registrations. I think we had over 200 people attend it. 
Yeah. Um, so we're doing programs like that. It was awesome. I love that. I love that. And uh, of course, listeners of this podcast will recognize Bob Taylor from maybe three or four episodes ago. He had, he had some... Uh, just, I love Bob. Yeah, great. <laughs> as well. So um, I'd love for you to talk about Sally briefly, and then I've got one more question for you. Uh, I know you're a busy man. Yeah. You're very, you're being very generous with your time. So, talk about Sally, um, and then uh, we've got one more question, and we'll wrap up. Sure. Um, and and I don't. I love spending time on this. I'm very passionate about it. In fact, Sally is one of the things I'm extremely passionate about. So, Sally, which is S A L I, it's Standards Advancement for the Legal Industry, and I came up with that name after just I think three beers. Uh, it was one I came up with and I was looking for something that was catchy, memorable, short. Um, so I'm somewhat proud of coming up with that because I'm normally not the marketing, uh, branding person, but what Sally was born of, I frequently, um, bag on task codes from the podium. I do a lot of presentations and my, my critique of them is people are trying to use them for pricing and budgeting and project management, and they are not built for that. They're and used. task codes here, Toby, just, just to clarify, task codes, you're, you're talking about you know, when an attorney uh, fills out a billing sheet, they have to kind of click down, drop down and say, I had a phone conference with plaintiff's counsel, 0.3 hours, or uh, opposition to motion to compel, 2.1 hours. That's, that's what you're referring to here. Yeah, and the codes are, they're the uniform task-based management. I can never keep them right. People just refer to them usually as the ABA task codes. And what they are is a code that is applied to a time entry that's supposed to designate the category or the task that's being done by via that time entry and that effort. And the, the, the litigation codes, which are called the L codes, have been around for quite a while. More recently, they came out with transactional codes. I believe they're the C codes. And, and it's like the L100 phase of litigation is basically the beginning. The L200 the next part. L300 is where discovery is. L400, I believe, is pretrial. Whatever they are, they're codes you put on time entries. And so what clients are doing, even now, this is what e-billing does, is capture those codes. The clients are hoping that they'll be able to say, oh, a deposition costs X dollars. Um, and from major experience of digging into how task codes are used. I can tell you that data is not there. And the reason in part, well, I've already said they're not designed for what people are trying to use them for, but the use is so inconsistent. And I remember once back at Aiken, some partners pushing and say, well, there must be useful information in here. And I finally showed them an example and they're like, oh, well, the secretaries choose the codes. And I was like, there you go. But so I, I was saying we shouldn't be looking at task codes and a bunch of people cornered me on a number of occasions and said, what should we be doing? And I said, well, if it was me, I wouldn't start with task codes. I'd start with the type of work, because even if I could say a deposition costs X, you should be saying for what? So these people pushed me and I finally said, look, this is not that easy. It sounds easy, but frankly, it's what the industry needs. And so we we agreed to do it. So. I had experience back in 99 and 2000 with an organization, another, another standards body called Legal XML, and we created the data standard for e-filing in the courts. Um, so I had experience 
with the standards body. And I said, look, it has to be a separate entity. It has to have balanced reputation from stakeholders. And just like LVN, it was clients, law firms, and business partners, tech providers primarily, because you've got to have all three perspectives into a standard or it doesn't become a standard. And you need a separate entity so that people can contribute IP that goes to that entity and not to their competitors. So we actually went to LMA, to ILTA and the ALA for sort of seed money to get it going. And those three organizations are still still very involved. In fact, we have a board meeting next week. So we got that up and running. I am the president of the board of Sally. In January, or I'll say early February of this year, we released our first standard and it's the legal matter it's LMSS. Now I'm forgetting all the words that go into it, but it's basically matter type codes with type of service, which would be dispute or transaction and an area of law, you know, banking, you know, oil, energy, whatever. And it's a very, very thoughtful framework for how firms and clients can be naming the type of work being done in a common understood fashion. So the way you develop a standard is you come up with a draft, you get input, you get some reference implementations, and then you publish it. So we published 1.0 of the standard earlier this year. We're now working on a litigation project code set. So we went across the top for type of work, and now we're going down one of those types and establishing the you know code, project codes in the litigation space, which has the potential to displaced in some fashion task codes. And these are designed for pricing and project management and such. So this is really important stuff. And the reason I'm so passionate about this is because without standards, innovation becomes extremely difficult. Imagine if every electrical outlet was different. How are we going to get adoption of electricity and innovation in the use of electricity? You're not going to get it. So to me, of all the stuff I have my hands in, I think the biggest long-term and positive impact on the profession is going to be Sally. And this could also presumably support some excellent statistical analysis of pricing and flat fees and you know portfolio-based billing going forward, right? I mean, if if uh, flat fee billing is truly going to be win-win, you need this standardized structured data. Absolutely. If I can remember my comment earlier about clients should be valuing at the fee level instead of the rate level. Yeah. How are they going to compare apples to apples at the fee level if there's not a standardized way of <laughs> describing and defining what that matter level is? So that's why we started with the matter level stuff. And if you go to sally.org, another thing about a standard is it's free. You can download it. That We actually have a tool on our website where you can browse it and sort of move through different pieces of the standard. Um, but you can download it in a spreadsheet. Um, highly recommend that people go take a look at that, especially if you're like going, going to upgrade your accounting system or your intake system, or your conflict system. That's a good time to step back and say, hey, we could use standards for this instead of making up our own stuff. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, Sally is kind of a, a passion project of yours, a professional passion oh, yeah. project. And, and, you know, this is not a, you know, profit-making organization. This is kind of an open... <laughs> no, no. Right? This, is, this is your way of, of uh, offering up across the legal industry on the client side, the law firm side, the uh, legal solutions provider side, a, a, a new structure, a new framework uh, going forward. Yes, hopefully. 
<laughs> Great. Yeah, this is uh, really interesting. I, and, and I'd encourage all of our listeners to check out the LMSS, uh, the uh, new standard set that Toby referred to. Toby, I want to wrap up with one last question here. And that is a question that I always end this podcast on. And, you know, it, it traces back to the very theme of this podcast, which is rapid change in the legal industry. Uh, when I created this podcast several years ago, I didn't realize how how relevant, how appropriate this theme would be, especially in our current era of this you know, massive pandemic, you know, remote work, recession, all of that. Uh, in light of that, but kind of zooming out even further, you know, call it 20 years from now, can you offer up a prediction to our listeners uh, as to where the legal industry is going? Certainly. And given, you know, my, all the passion I just exhibited around Sally and LVN and everything, people might expect that I would be very optimistic about change. Um, sadly, <laughs> I am not. Um in part, in fact, I remember years ago when I worked with the Utah State Bar, I made the prediction that, in fact, this would have been around 99, that within five years, all these changes would have occurred. Well, they they have not. And so that would have been 20 years ago. And and I've come to appreciate why. Everyone talks about, oh, when is the Netflix of legal going to displace, you know, the blockbuster that we now have? And the and I've actually had this conversation recently with a client, and I said, our customers, you know, they're looking over at Netflix, and they're like, yeah, no, uh, I love my, my VHS tape, and I will never, I love winding it and rewinding it, <laughs> and then they're, they're, they're tightly gripping their, their uh, video, their VCR, and they're not about to try Netflix. The, the point I make there is that, and I made this earlier, the the decision makers within larger companies that buy legal services are people who used to work at large law firms. And so they were trained and steeped in the old way of doing it. And they're very, very comfortable with it. I have had clients say to me point blank, this is general counsel of a different pipeline company, was like, we can do this on a fixed fee. We can demonstrate cost savings. She was like, no, 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 I, I, I could end up paying you too much. And I'm like, well, you could end up paying us a lot less than you would have, probably more likely. And she just said, no, I'm comfortable with hours and rates. I know how to deal with that. And so I'm a little more bearish on how quickly change will come to our industry, because until our clients, until the legal departments are sort of forced into doing this, and and I mean, you know, the CFO and the CEO finally go, you know what, we gave you guys a chance. <laughs> we're we're going to have to do this differently. It, it's still going to take some time for that change to come in. Again, I think Sally is a great foundation for, for creating the opportunity to do that. I wish clients, you know, people always say, why aren't there more alternative fee arrangements? I'm like, because clients, too often you go and pitch, put a very thoughtful pitch on and doing a fixed fee in there. They end up going at the 11th hour. They go, mm, no, we just want a discount. Uh, and so I hope we overcome that. I hope we get the project-based fees. It would be better for clients and better for law firms. 20 years, I would certainly hope so. But after making that prediction 20 years ago, I don't know that I can make it now. I, I like that real, uh, you know, the, the reality baked into that. I, I think you're right in a lot of ways. I, you know, I, I <laughs> just the, the um, you know, the visual of a GC in a suit 
uh, hugging uh, a VCR closely just is is a, is a funny, <laughs> funny. <laughs> in this context, I think I think uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty right to me, and so I appreciate Toby that uh, that that prediction. Some predictions that we hear on this podcast are, you know, su- suggest that things may change at at light speed, and, and others are more consistent with. Yours, you know, the billable hour isn't going anywhere fast, and the structure of law firms is, is going to uh, stay exactly as it is uh, for the near future. So, so I, I appreciate that kind of uh, bringing us back down to earth, Toby. Toby, uh, let's wrap up there. I really appreciate your time uh, in discussing this with us. We had a really wide-ranging discussion from pricing to additional services that firms like Perkins Coie, through teams like yours can present to, to clients, and then in addition to uh, some new things you're working on, new-ish, namely Sally and LVN. So I, I really appreciate all of the ground that we were able to cover here today. It, it was fun. And again, thank you. I really appreciate you including me. And like I said, it's been a while since I've, I've done a podcast. So this is a fun experience. That's wonderful. Thanks again, Toby. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.